Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. November 24th, 2022. Happy Thanksgiving. The What If Twitter Vanished edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in D.C. I'm joined, uh, not in D.C., by John Dickerson of CBS Prime Time from New York. Hello, John. Hello, David. And from New Haven, Connecticut, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale, Yale, Yule, Yule, the no longer <laughs> ranked, the no longer ranked by U.S. News, Yale University Law School. So now I'm not one of the top law schools in the country. From Bottom. New Haven. Yes. How does it feel to be at a, working in unranked and probably now unaccredited law school, Emily? Righteous. It feels righteous. I don't think we lose our accreditation for uh, the dean pulling out of the U.S. News and World Report rankings, but maybe that will be next. Uh, but yeah, no, it was totally righteous thing to do. They're not valuing public service enough, and those rankings are just like a terrible scourge on the universe, as far as I can tell. This week on the GabFest, could Twitter vanish? What would happen if it did? Then this World Cup was born in squalor, raised in sin. Can it be redeemed? And then a once prominent anti-abortion activist claims Justice Alito leaked a key Supreme Court decision some years ago, weeks before it was made public. What does this tell us about the recent Dobbs leak? Does it matter if the court is leaky? Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And reminder, our conundrum show is coming up and we have a great guest who's going to who's going to cogitate on the mysteries of the universe with us Alison Bechdel she of the Bechdel test and who better who better than the writer cartoonist I would say part-time philosopher Alison Bechdel so if you have conundrums you'd like us to answer or you'd like Alison to tackle please send them to us by going to slate.com slash conundrums and just a just a little teaser dear listeners here are a few that you sent it sent to us already. Should voting be weighted to account for how long the vote would impact your life? For instance, if you're 18, your vote would be worth one vote. But if you're age 77, it would be worth a tenth of a vote. Uh, that's a really good question. Then another one, would you rather travel 100 years back in time to meet your ancestors or 100 years into the future to meet your, your descendants? Great question. And this one, fuck, marry, kill, bread, rice, pasta, which is an amazing <laughs> question. Amazing. So submit your conundrums to us at slate.com slash conundrums. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to luckylandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The chaos at Twitter has calmed down slightly this week, I guess by the standards of previous recent weeks. Elon Musk has not tweeted quite as many provocations at his employees. Of course, he has fewer employees, so why bother? <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> right. Most of the people who he was tweeting provocations at have, have been fired or quit. That's what's happened. Uh, the site still seems to be operating. Donald Trump, I guess, is allowed back on it. So is uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, I saw this morning, is allowed back on it. Um, still, Twitter exilees, uh, the Twitter heretics, are issuing dire warnings that the site could collapse and die. So 
so I think there's the question of what could it fall apart and what would that be like? And then could it vanish and what would that be like? Uh, so do, do you guys think it is a reasonable posit that Twitter could actually fall apart? I think it could break in some way that could prove temporary, like they could fix it. But, you know, there's the people who know about coding and things that I don't know about have presented various scenarios in which there's a part of the Twitter technology, part of the infrastructure that breaks or jams, and there aren't people who have the deep knowledge of the system to fix it. I would imagine that eventually they would get it back online. You could worry about a data breach in the middle of that. So, you know, if you have a lot of private DMs on Twitter, now might be a good time to delete them. I also think in the medium term, it could go bankrupt. I mean, Musk has saddled it with an enormous amount of debt. And so the financial picture looks like a threat to me. On the other hand, it's this international, you know, place where people talk to each other and yell at each other, and it's not easily replaced at all. I've been interested to see how much energy there is in rooting for its survival, despite the kind of evil overlord veneer of the moment. To me, Elon Musk took over this thing. And when there was personal suffering in the Pelosi family and the moment of uncertainty and Paul Pelosi lying in a hospital bed with his head being stapled back together, Elon Musk made the personal decision to make their lives more miserable in front of his millions of followers. So that, I think, has to be kept clearly in the center of the moral frame. On the other hand, um, there are things that could be done with um, focus, attention, and a little skill that could make Twitter very good. It could basically allow the awful to go have their own channel where they all talk to each other and um, trade their, you know, spoonfuls of poison to each other, but that people who are interested in the functioning rational world and conversation and um, all of the wonderful things that are part wonder, joy of, of Twitter could have a clean channel that's actually helped by the technology, that misinformation can be figured out, um, and that, that there are solutions to this which might make... Um, quite a pleasant place. There might be more channels, and some of those channels might be truly awful, but they would be essentially minimized. I, and I root for that. I, I think that there is that there are ways to fix parts of Twitter, including its attacks on our attention. The problem, of course, is that Musk, and you can see this in his tweets, at least for the moment, is, is running his business model on attention grabbing um, because he needs, presumably, the revenue. So I, I definitely think the people who think it's it is in its death throes or it's going to fall apart completely are, are deluding themselves. A smart friend of mine I was talking to about this yesterday points out that Reddit, which is at least as complicated and also incredibly contentious, has like 20% the number of employees that Twitter had. Uh, so it's very possible that it was overstaffed. It's also true that in our own lifetime, we all can remember that Twitter operated more or less as it does today with probably a tenth the staff. I mean, it's not Twitter is not that different than it was eight years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Um, so some stuff will break and more offensive things will be on the platform, but I assume it will work. And I also assume, I assume that where the troubles will come for Musk will be with advertisers because they no longer will see it as a safe space. It has be increasingly become a place where there is brand advertising, but if it's perceived as this 
as this safe space, as this haven for villains and trolls and mockery, and that there's no reliable protections for a brand to keep itself away from that, then advertisers will shy away, as we're already seeing. John, you've painted a picture where, you know, there are these separate uh, Twitter micro-universes, and and here's one where we discuss flowers, and here's one where we discuss uh, anti-Semitism, uh, and here's where we are anti-Semitic. I don't know. That feels that feels like a pipe dream, given who owns it. And while much of Musk's free speech theory is so simplistic as to be not theory, there is good free speech theory for this, right? That you want people talking to each other across these divides and you create content moderation that allows not for walled-off gardens, but for a free-for-all. Well, what if you what if essentially they up the tools of both um, the ones you don't see and the ones you have? So, for example, it's it's a, the Matiglasius, um, you know, offering, which is basically you make Mega Blocker um, a, an internal tool of Twitter, and you know it's very easy to see. In fact, you could really basically use one of Musk's own tweets as your Mega Blocker. And basically, everybody who has favorited one of his um, um, sort of highly immature, um, pitiable tweets, um, you block everybody who favorited it. And you would clean up your, your, you would create your wall. It's not Twitter doing it. It's giving you the power to create your own world in which people who um, gather around that and who... um, like that kind of thing are just not in your world anymore. And this is not, you know, I don't want to hear what people have to say who prefer lower tax rates. These are people who uh, kind of find nourishment in the lowest order of immature behavior. And so that's fine. Let them go do that. I mean, it's not fine. It's awful. But um, let them go do that. And you wouldn't have to be around that. And you would have created it yourself. And he would have given you the tools to create it. And that way, it's that that seems totally possible. That way, you leave the big circus but you create your own walls. So this is very journalist-centric. But John, as a journalist, do you feel comfortable using tools like that? I mean, at the New York Times, we've been asked not to use tools like that. And the idea is that we're not supposed to be blocking people. We're supposed to be open to what they're saying back to us. And I see the virtue of that. On the other hand, the weird thing about social media is the cross between the personal and the professional. And so there's some personal, you know, cost to being right. bombarded we make, in that way. Yeah, we, we make decisions all the time about how to apply our time and attention to the inform- information that comes to us. So and we also make a, a we also understand the hierarchy of information that comes to us and what we have time and attention for. And so it, first of all, if Twitter is your primary way of getting in information, you've got the wrong end of the stick just from the beginning of it. And if um, if tweezing out um, how you do and don't receive information on Twitter is where you're spending your energy as a news organization, you've got the wrong end of a second stick. So I think it's, as a journalist, you know, your obligation is to um, uh, pay attention to bigger, smarter voices of all different kinds um, and to use some of the the you know, and to use your brain in that world, including, as you do, going and reporting and talking to actual people. So when you're done with all that, there's no more time in the day for you to listen to what Spoonboy7835 has to say about, you know, Jews and how they run the world. It's not, I don't think it's a big, huge loss. I would like for you guys to explain to me uh, this question, which is that what is, 
what is the value that Twitter brings to the world that other entities cannot? And what what is the thing that would truly be lost if we lost it? So I, and I will like preface that by saying I, as I mentioned a couple of weeks on the GabFest, I am now uh, on, I'm now on a, a, a Twitter diet, a Twitter fast. And I've given up scrolling Twitter. I don't look at tweets anymore. And I feel like I'm missing some of the conversation. On the other hand, I'm reading more books and watching more World Cup. So uh, that seems good. And I just wonder what what it is that you all think is the irreplaceable aspect of it that can't be taken over by an Instagram where a brand can certainly share its message or by TikTok where an influencer can certainly do something fun that people will find engaging. All those things can replace it. There's nothing special about Twitter. Everybody, you know, people happen to be there already and I'm lazy. So I think it's, I'm um, platform agnostic. Um, but for, but what I do think for me, the a utility of it is, for example, this morning, Diane Swank, who's the chief economist for KPMG, um, uh, did a riff on, um, basically she was saying, I don't want to, um, I don't want to have to game out the damage that would come from another rail strike. And then she essentially did. I mean, she, so it was like a series of tweets about this rail strike that might very well happen. Um, and it was uh, quite interesting, low barrier to posting. And so she could, this is, you know, the equivalent of what she would say if you ran into her on the bus. Um, and Which she would be taking because it, there was a rail strike. That's right, because there's a rail strike. And it was um, interesting expert information that you didn't, you know, she didn't have to go get booked on CNBC. She didn't have to go write something for a, so it was a, um, you know, a low touch way to do that, which was uh, very useful to me and prompted my thinking. And now I can go off and read more if I want. I learn stuff from political science professors every day about cool things that they're researching and have studied and found. And so those kinds of that stuff is so useful. Um, I would hate to have it disappear entirely, but it doesn't need to show up on Twitter. I think it's what John is saying, the sort of quick hits of analysis by experts in a moment where you're curious. And maybe you would see that in a news feed, but you very well might not. That's the most useful thing. And then the other thing is gossip and people having fights with each other and being mean. And while that is attention grabbing and I totally fall for it, I think especially in our like less office COVID era, um, it scratches some itch that I have. It is not good. Like, that's the part where a Twitter fast would be very good for me because often it just draws me in in a kind of spectator way. It's like a gladiator fight. I don't need to know that people are mad at each other. Or if it has some effect on me, if it's directed at me, it then, like, affects my day. And neither of those things are helpful, and I would be better off without it. The point that Anne made, which I think is right, which is is more complicated, it, is is at what point does one make a personal decision about participating in a in a thing that is an engine of perfecting hate um, and that relies on that hate and relies on the attention grabbing nature of not just gossipy hate but um, you know truly dangerous awful hate while you may be participating in your channel over here and you don't see uh, all the um, sludge in the other one you're nevertheless participating in something that's morally bad slate plus members you get bonus segments on the gab fest every week if you go to slate.com slash gab plus you can become a member 
our Slate Plus segment today. It's a sort of preview of our conundrum show. We're going to pick one of the conundrums that's been sent in. This one was sent in by Ben. And we're going to talk about it as our Slate Plus segment, uh, just as a little teaser for for the show that we'll be doing in a few weeks. And that question is going to be, what's something you wish you could travel through time to convince your younger self of, but you doubt your younger self could be brought to believe? So go to slate.com slash plus to become a member today. Get bonus segments from us as well as no ads on any podcasts and member exclusive episodes and segments from other shows like Slow Burn and Amicus, as well as unlimited reading on the Slate site. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame it was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Like many of you, I will be spending the next four weeks watching the World Cup. That will be what I'm doing. Uh, I woke up early, watched the Argentina-Saudi Arabia game this morning at 5 a.m. That was exciting. We're not going to talk today about the likely outcomes, about Lionel Messi's swan song, the it's coming home daring do of the English team, the injuries to the French team, the, the possible disappointments of the U.S. team. We're going to talk about it as a political spectacle. This World Cup has come onto the stage in a full kind of full dressed up in villainy. It was won nefariously with Qatar bribing the extremely bribable FIFA greedy sportocrats back more than a decade ago. They got the cup over the U.S. through just absolute bribery and chicanery. And it's been kind of just a ghoulish parade of horrors ever since. They've imported hundreds of thousands of laborers from 
the poorer world, especially from Nepal, to build stadiums and roads and and hotels, and with scant regard for the well-being of those workers who died by the hundreds in the scorching heat. There it was, is the continued persecution of gay people in Qatar, the suppression even unto today of the slightest effort by soccer players to acknowledge the persecution of gay people and the and the kind of bullying of soccer players to prevent them from publicly acknowledging it. Uh, there's so much that's ugly, ugly, ugly about what this World Cup is. And yet. And yet. <laughs> and, and I will be on the side of and yet. I will represent the side of and yet. Emily, China Olympics, Russia Olympics, Russia World Cup. Not exactly. These sports events are not exactly the province of the most egalitarian and humane democracies. It's not like, you know, Oslo this week and Stockholm next week. Yes, you are right, of course, that there are many global sporting events that do not win the Human Rights Award in terms of where they are located. And that is probably to the good in the sense that we are, in the end, one globe and uh, ruling out countries based on their human rights records is probably a bad idea. At the same time, I think what troubles me about this World Cup in Qatar is all of the um, migrant labor that went into actually building the apparatus for the event that seems to have just involved enormous suffering and exploitation and death in a way that seems like they really could have fixed that. And there could have been a way to actually pay people what they were owed. I mean, there's so much money at stake here. The idea that the people who get cheated are the laborers who are actually building the stadiums, et cetera, is disgusting. And I, I mean, it's in the past, I suppose, but it's really discouraging that FIFA and the World Cup were what appears to be so for sale that they couldn't insist on some basically decent labor standards as this thing was getting constructed in a desert. One of the things that I guess I'd never really thought about is obviously there's these tremendous number of deaths in Qatar from construction either of World Cup facilities or things that are related to World Cup facilities, death and suffering. And the deaths are, you know, hundreds of suicides of Nepali workers Horrible. in I'm Qatar probably, alone. Yeah, th- we don't know, but thousands yeah. of people have died. But the other point is that it's actually, it is not just a Qatar problem. That That if you look, it is even more deaths in Saudi Arabia, a much bigger country, deaths in the UAE, like throughout the region, workers, migrant workers are brought in, treated appallingly and die at shocking rates. And it's so it is it's certainly true that the World Cup is a is an accelerant of that in Qatar's case. But it's not true that it, this is a problem of the World Cup. It's a problem of a, of a kind of economic system throughout the region. And does that in that case, and I'm not trying to be, so take this in with all the proper caveats, but I mean, in a sense, a lot more people know about what you just described, David, now as a result of the World Cup than they would have before. But that feels to me like not enough. I mean, yeah. I hear yeah, yeah. what you're, right, obviously, I don't mean to be suggesting you're saying that it is, but I mean, the isn't the response or a response, David, to your correct point that FIFA and the World Cup had a chance to try to change that dynamic and a responsibility and they didn't. And that is worse. Like you're still they are still implicated in this terrible economic picture, even if it's broader, maybe especially because it's because it's broader. No, I think that's true. And and I think your point, like they did spend, I think the figure is more than two hundred billion dollars on this. And 
it does seem like if you're spending 200 billion dollars could you have maybe put some shade like made water readily available like things like that um so it is it is it is shocking and there's a way also in which uh i guess is a gianni infantino um the head of fifa um confirmed all of the worst views of FIFA in his hour long tirade um, saying that, you, you know, Europeans um, should apologize for 3000 years before it has it. Europe has any right to make any claims about human rights. Oh, what about ism? Yeah. Which is basically identical to what Donald Trump said about Russia, like, and, to, and Hungary too. He's like, we, uh, but of course the point is that one of the things hopefully that Europeans have learned um, after the failures of 3000 years is that, um, turning a blind eye to abuse of um, those who have no voice for the purposes of your entertainment is not something you should do. So um, that it seemed to be uh, he just that, that 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 sort of compounds the point you guys were making, which is that FIFA had a chance to use its leverage for good um, and not only didn't, but is also now saying like you're hypocrites for even thinking we should. And of course they're hypocrites, but that doesn't mean you don't try to make things better in the moment for the people who are being the most crushed. It is the worst of all organizations. I I think what's funny is that my strong suspicion is that this is going to turn out to be basically a fiasco for Qatar. It's going to be a fiasco in several senses. One, they're going to be terrible at the soccer. And so they've made a multi-billion dollar international effort to improve their soccer team and so that they compete, compete with these other teams. And they're going, they ju- at least judging by their first game, they're just terrible and they're going to lose badly. And it's going to show that you can't, in fact, buy your way to soccer excellence. You can buy your way to influence, but you can't, by the way, buy your way to excellence. Secondly, I don't think this is a country it's the size of Connecticut. No offense, Emily. Um, but it's hard to see what they're getting for their $220 billion. It's not going to be a tourist Mecca. It's a tiny kind of nothing spot of desert, which is sitting on a big pond of natural gas. Um, it's not going to be a force in world soccer. It's built these stadiums, which are white elephants. In fact, they look like white elephants, actually. But they're white elephant stadiums. They're never going to be used for anything else. And I just don't see, I just don't see there, there's actually been a ton of very effective sports washing in soccer recently where you where countries use their influence to kind of make themselves look better and if you can look at uh the government of abu dhabi bought the manchester city football team soccer team the government of saudi arabia just bought the newcastle soccer team um qatar has actually done this successfully buying the paris soccer team where they bought these excellent internationally valued brands and run them really well and have, I think, glossed their image by doing that. Um, but I just don't think the World Cup is, I think the World Cup is going to, it's going to seem like like a kind of a joke, ultimately. I don't think they're going to succeed. Everybody seems pretty bitter about it right now, right? The Qataris, everybody. Yeah, I think they should have just stuck with owning teams. May I ask you a question, David, that's related to what you said we weren't going to talk about, but has the sport, as a fan of the sport, and I'm really, really, really open to being a fan of soccer. Um, and I just don't have the time. But um, has the gilded influence of countries like Qatar changed the quality or style of play? It has changed where the balance of power in the world is. So there's now half a dozen teams, uh, Manchester City, Paris Saint-Germain, now Newcastle, um, 
which have so much money that they're able to concentrate great players in a way that it was much harder to in the past. Uh, and so, so the super teams are, are even, even more super than they used to be. So that's one piece. I think another piece is that it's made it, the quest for global talent has gotten even better. So the, like every, every village and every, every place in, in Cameroon that can be scouted for a great new player, it's going to be scouted for a great new player. So it's, so the, the, the level of talent is extraordinarily high. Like you don't, there are not people who, who, who are missed. Uh, there's not, there's not like, Oh, that guy would have been great. It's ev- everybody who could be good is cultivated, trained. Uh, and so the, I think the quality of play is incredibly high. The, the quality of soccer in the world, especially at the top level, is unbelievably high right now. And as a fan, that's a huge pleasure. The, similar, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, as an, you're an American, you probably are more familiar with basketball. Very similar to what's happened with basketball, except imagine that it's not just NBA teams that are scouting. It's also the government of Abu Dhabi, the government of Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, the, the, that, that the effort is... is global and even more better funded. And what I would then like is a 5,000 word essay comparing global basketball to global soccer. Because on the one hand, you have more people playing in soccer, and therefore it would seem like you'd have more opportunities to be the kid from a poor family in Cameroon who rises to greatness than in basketball. But you also need big fields. And in a world of, um, you know, global warming, you don't have them so much. Um, whereas just a, a hoop, um, is possible. So like, what is the, what are the, the opportunities economy provided by both? Versus the, basketball. Thank you. That is exactly what I was trying to say. It's a great idea. Where's the assignment editor on this call? Where exactly? 5,000 words, please. Well, what's also really interesting, and this is, we're really getting off topic here, is that when you think about the world population centers and notably China and India, but also the, most of the countries that surround China and India, there's practically no good soccer. And there's practically, with the limited exceptions, there's practically no good basketball. And it's like, wow, that is half the world's population that actually isn't really being touched by these two mega global sports. What's up with that? Like, why have they, why? Are they super good at other sports? Sorry to be so ignorant. Varies, some, some and some, yes. But, but do not compare to how big their populations are for the most part. Um, I want to make one one other point, which is that there has been this way. So the World Cup is in Qatar, partly because Qatar beat out, bribed out the U.S. for it. Uh, but Olympics increasingly are going to countries that are autocratic, kleptocratic, and where there's an authoritarian government that can get away with allocating the money, the funds needed to build all the stadiums and the infrastructure. And there's this this truism now in international economics that these global sporting events are really bad economically. Sort of like sport, it's American cities paying tons of money for sporting teams, right? Although at least that has a more long-term benefit. I just want to say that I don't believe it. I think that the brand value for for the right kind of places, and I would say like London in 2012, Los Angeles in 1984, Beijing uh, in 2008, uh, that the brand value for those places for doing those events was so huge that, yes, I'm sure on a simply dollar to dollar 
economic value. Like, did the dollar we spent on the stadium result in another dollar of tourist activity? No, it did not. Like, maybe that's true. But like, if you looked at it overall, I really think that the big mega sporting events for the right places are super valuable. I think Barcelona, like the Barcelona Olympics, put Barcelona on the international tourist map in a way that's kept it there. I don't think it's going to be true for Qatar, but I do think it, that that I, w- I would love to see American cities and competing for these events again in a serious way, because I think we would benefit from them. An interesting report by Emily's New York Times alleges that Justice Samuel Alito revealed, perhaps intentionally, perhaps unintentionally, the decision in the 2014 Hobby Lobby case about the right of private companies to refuse to cover contraception for employees to some conservative religious activists who had buttered him up and ingratiated themselves with him. The Reverend Robert Schenck, who is an evangelical minister and former anti-abortion leader, now disaffected, heretical, um, claims that that when he was still in the in the anti-abortion movement, he trained donors to cultivate the conservative justices, appealing to their religious beliefs, their religious uh, interests, and also creating a social atmosphere where the justices would feel supported for their beliefs and thus presumably more likely in the long run to rule in their favor and also giving Shank some information he could trade on. So Emily, um, really interesting report. It doesn't have to do with the Dobbs leak that we talked about. It's not directly about the Dobbs leak, but it did start to reveal as, and then there's been some subsequent reporting, this, this relationship that exists between, in this case, conservative justices and activists who seek to, uh, benefit or seek to, to shift conservative justices or seek the Supreme Court's um, to change its decisions. So what did you make of the report? Well, I think you're absolutely right. There are two parts to this. Um, uh, this article, this probably series of articles by Jody Cantor and Joe Becker. And the first part is the leak. And so we should talk about how much this matters. And, you know, so we'll take that first. And then the second part is this like social cultivation that's connected to praying with the justices at in the Supreme Court building. Those are allegations from the successor of Robert Shank that she made like on a hot mic. That's not brand new news, but it's connected to this group Faith in Action and Liberty Council. And the issue here with this sort of social cultivation is um I think more interesting to me in some ways because there is, first of all, this, I think, real problem of an appearance of impropriety of groups that are filing briefs in front of the Supreme Court and then also having these private meetings, especially prayer sessions, because their prayer is such an obvious tool of advocacy and of people's deep emotions about a subject. So if, you know, the justices in or out of court are praying with groups for the end of abortion who are also filing briefs asking to reverse Roe versus Wade, like that just seems like obviously crossing a line. And I should just say in this context that the Supreme Court sets its own ethics rules and basically has no rules. And at the end of all of this is that just like huge problem, I think, in how it operates as an institution. And we're seeing the cost to the institution in um, the liberties people are taking, justices are taking. And, you know, there were calls for the FBI to get involved in this leak investigation, but I don't think that's actually happened. Hobby Lobby was the company that didn't want to provide health insurance that included birth control coverage. So the allegation here is that um, Alito or his wife at a dinner with a very wealthy couple um, 
let slip that that the decision was going to come down on behalf of the challengers who did not want employers to have to pay for birth control for their employees. And that when Shank found this out a few weeks early, he was then able to prepare for it. Um, So I find this part, obviously, if it is true, it's bad. Supreme Court judges aren't supposed to let this information slip. I'm not sure how much it really mattered in the world that this reverend knew this in advance. It does, however, just add to the sense that, um, you know, something too close was going on. And I think for me, one of the most uh, startling parts of the story was, so the one of the pieces of evidence supporting this thesis is that the wife and the couple emailed Reverend Shank and said, I have some news for you. Call me no email. So obviously she had something to disclose that she didn't want written down. And then her excuse to the New York Times for this was, oh, she'd gotten sick that night and Justice Alito had driven her home. And that was something she needed to be super excited and report privately in a phone call. And that's so implausible. Like, she should have just said, I don't recall. I mean, really, it just seems utterly um, just not believable. And so that makes you think, okay, well, it does seem like there was this private channel of communication. And that's just, they're just not supposed to be doing that. And I don't think it necessarily suggests that Alito is the source of the Dobbs link, because I just... I mean, there is an argument that leak was in his interest, but it's not that strong to me. But it does go with this picture that's emerged of Alito as being really intemperate, right? I mean, this is a person who's given these, like, fire and brimstone speeches at Notre Dame and elsewhere who, you know— like mouthed this denunciation of President Obama during a State of the Union, like he's just doesn't seem to have a lot of self-control. And and that's not good for the court as an institution. I mean, maybe it's fine that we're getting to see that, but. Why is that not good? It's not good in at least the narrow case that if it's a self-policing institution, at the basis of self-policing is that you have some ability to be restrained and that you aren't swayed by your emotions and particularly by the ones that are most closely felt by you because those are the areas that most need recusal and otherwise. So if you're if you're susceptible to flying off the handle, not good in a place that says you must police whether you are going to fly off the handle or not. I'm not sure if I believe what I'm about to say, but it absolutely infuriates me the kind of monastic self-regard that the Supreme Court holds itself in and this pretense that they are that they are you know these high priests of the law above everything we just know they're humans like us they're exactly like us they're vain they're petty they're small they are susceptible to flattery they're susceptible to you know making one decision before lunch and another one after lunch because of of how good lunch was uh and and to this is i think what alito does is 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 revealing a little bit more of that humanity than justices and the Supreme Court as an institution wants revealed. But I don't know that that's correct. I mean, and I would, and I I don't actually know the answer to this question, Emily, but I'm sure you do. I am sure it is the case that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was cronies and friends with liberal legal activists. Sure of it. A million percent. Like, was she leaking results? I have no idea. But like, was she hanging out with people who who were 
you know, very sympathetic to the liberal side of cases. I bet she was. Including journalists who cover the the court and shape the public perception. I mean, Nina Totenberg's yeah. book is about this. Like, there's tons of hobnobbing going on in it. So but there is a difference between socializing with people and telling them what's about to happen. So let's just make that clear. But I think you're right. I mean, I did a lot of thinking as I was reading this story about how I would have felt if it was liberal justices hanging out with liberal, very wealthy people. And I think there is still an appearance of impropriety, right? I mean, part of what's going on here is like access to the Supreme Court Historical Society. It's like really buying your way in. There's also just a weird social aspect to this where, I mean, it does not seem from his response that Justice Alito realized that these this couple he thought he was just friends with was actually like deliberately cultivating him and reporting back to Reverend Shank like various dates they had and things that were said, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, even if you did do this leak, that seems like something that would take you aback, that the people you thought were your friends and supporters were actually basically like plants. <laughs> that's that's weird. Yeah, they've been paid to be friends with him. Or, or they, or they were, were paying to be friends, to be with, friends, him, friends right? with him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I have two, two points. The first is on the monastic self-regard is uh, what you say, David, is I think exactly right. But I think it's inconsistent for an individual justice to say, and this is not what Alito is saying, but but you can't say don't hold me to the monastic standard of purity and my reason you shouldn't hold me to that standard is because I am a sterling member of the monastery. In other words, they use it to protect them from inquiry. Yes. And so then you yes. can't then say, yes. well, this allows yes. them to behave. Yeah, as they yeah, want. yeah. No, I agree. Um, I totally agree with you. Yes. And, and Alito, just like Scalia, you know, really does uh, polish up the badge of monastic superiority. Um, and so doesn't really, isn't allowed to, to to avail himself of that defense. But but what I found so extraordinary about this piece was not the whether Alito leaked or not. It seems, having reported on a zillion things like this, there are a million times, so now that's a zillion and a million, people call you and say, oh, I got this thing. Like I was at this dinner and they said this, da 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 and I'm like, well, what exactly did they say? And they said, well, they said Hobby Lobby. Right, okay, so that's great. But what else did they say? No, they said Hobby Lobby. Okay, but did they say Hobby Lobby is going to be decided this way? They said Hobby Lobby, right? So you have this game of telephone with interested parties who want to basically dine out on the fact that they were at at Alito's and they want the thing to go a certain way. And oh, by the way, Alito is probably going to rule in this particular way. It's no big surprise. So all of the con- confirmation bias in the game of telephone makes it highly possible that this is essentially either somebody pretending they know something they don't, which people do all the time on in relationships like this. Oh, look how close I am to Alito. He told me this when it's total hokum. But that doesn't matter. What's fascinating is that this is a portal to this world of grooming the justices. And I think this is where it's interesting with respect to Dobbs. If the idea that you were mentioning earlier, Emily, was that Alito leaks it, or not Alito himself, but somebody who works for Alito, leaks the opinion to keep Justice Roberts in a box, to keep Justice Roberts from trying to find a more kind of middle-of-the-road decision, that it keeps the pressure on, that is what I understand um, this this campaign of Ministry of Emboldenment was, was that Shanks... Uh, objective here was was not just to get people to change their minds, but to really lock down these justices in a cocoon of 
of of um, affirmation so that they would stay on the maximalist position. And that does seem consistent with the theory behind one of the theories behind the leak of, of Dobbs. Yeah, and that's really interesting. You know, in some ways, it seems like Obviously, conservative justices are surrounded by people in a conservative and religious, if they're religious, social milieu that's supporting them and making them feel like they're doing important work, that they're doing God's work. And, you know, Supreme Court justices all over the ideological spectrum are going to have that kind of sport in their lives. I felt reading this that these conservative justices may at least feel that they're embattled in a way that was sort of surprising to me, given the Federalist Society and all of the money and attention and fame and glory that has come from the right wing for being who they are. And I think it's sort of part of their persona and their view of the world. I mean, we see this with Alito very strongly that, you know, he feels like he's shaking a fist in the um, face of the liberal establishment. And I also do understand, I mean, when you think about law schools and even legal world, it is a mostly liberal place. And so they're they're right that, I mean, I think it was, first I was like, why is Reverend Shank, was this just a big grift on his part that he was getting all this money to be right next to the Supreme Court? And don't the justices have this in their lives sufficiently that, you know, this is just like a play for donors? But then I started thinking, no, actually, I think they are performing a real role here. And then the appearance of impropriety starts to matter to me more. Not because I think that, you know, Alito's gonna um, vote to uphold Roe without this, but that in the long term, there are things that justices do and the level of just sort of um, righteousness that they feel that are gonna be affected by this kind of influence. Just aligning myself, Emily, with your point about them feeling embattled, I think it's not just that they, that the legal establishment, it's that Washington, they live in Washington, which is a very, uh, yes, there are lots of Republicans who are in Washington, sure, but it's a very liberal city. The media coverage that is in Washington, it tends to be very liberal. The kind of legal, uh, the legal media coverage is extremely liberal. So I do think that they feel like in their day to day, and this I bet was severely compounded by the the threat to, to Justice Kavanaugh. Um, they feel like, oh, we are, you know, we're living in the lion's den here and we we need to find the allies that we can find. And uh, I think it's probably really psychically important for them to to be more cocooned and cushioned. I don't think that the liberal justices feel that way when they go to the opera. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you were having a post-tryptophan cocktail, post-Thanksgiving cocktail, Emily, what will you be chattering about? There was an amazing and so well-reported and very disturbing story in my New York Times magazine this week by Rosina Ali. It's about um, the forced adoption and um, really the one word that is used in the story is kidnapping of an Afghan infant by a former U.S. serviceman, evangelical conservative in the United States. And it's just this tale of... um, so there's a there is a man and a woman who are under fire. Um, allegedly, the man blows himself up. The woman is killed um, by U.S. forces, and they there's a two month old baby who is with them, and she's brought to this American base. And understandably, people at the base are you know taken with her. Then the Afghans 
find out about this and they figure out who her family is. And they the child goes back to people who are closely related to her, who are taking care of her until she's two years old. But this particular U.S. serviceman, Jeffrey Mast, gets obsessed with this baby and basically tricks and deceives and lures this Afghan couple into coming to the United States ostensibly to get medical care for her. And this is, of course, as U.S. forces are leaving Afghanistan and everything is chaotic and they're scared and impoverished. And then succeeds in um, trumping up a case in American court that allows him to forcibly take this baby, this two-year-old, away from them. And it just broke my heart to read it. I find the idea of taking children away from the people who are their functional parents and taking care of them to be just heartrending every time. This has this whole international veneer that just made it more upsetting. And this case is going back to court this month. So um, it was a really well-timed story in terms of shining some light on this. And I'll be really curious what happens next. But kudos to Rosina Ali. She went to Afghanistan to find this family, um, to try to understand what had happened in this village when these um, deaths took place. And uh, it's a really good story. John, what's your chatter? My chatter is about um, a deception cake with a frosting of weaselness. Um the Philosophy of Modern Song, which is a book by Bob Dylan that was put out by Simon & Schuster, was offered to um, some uh, patrons for $599 to get hand-signed copies of this book. And this was sent out. The Philosophy of Modern Song arrived with what were hand-signed uh, autographs by Bob Dylan, except the people who purchased the $600 limited edition started comparing notes and realized that all the signatures were the same. So... It wasn't a hand sign. It was an auto pen. So this was the first act of deception. Then when Simon Schuster was busted, they said to those who purchased the Philosophy of Modern Song Limited Edition, we want to apologize. As it turns out, the limited edition books do contain Bob's original signature, but in a penned replica form. So they not only were weasels in the first instance, but then they're basically like saying, as it turns out, the truffle pasta was actually made by a guy named Joey Truffle, right? So they're like trying to weasel out of the original deception, which is like compounds the original deception by being weaselly. And then what I realized, and I'm asking this question to you, Emily, do they have to put out that weaselly attempt to justify their um, lame behavior for legal reasons? In other words, they have to say... Actually, we were cheating you by pretending, but it actually is based on his real signature so that they're not accused of an even bigger fraud, Emily. In other words, knowingly deceiving. Right. I, I guess I would hope that that even if that did have a kind of um, legal appeal, that someone would not actually do that. I, I mean, I'm sure Simon Schuster is, is, has some culpability here, but I'm sure Bob Dylan has some culpability, too. Like, this went out over his signature, literally. How many copies were there? 900 that's half a million dollars of of fake bob yeah. dylan signatures are they giving people their money back yeah yeah they're they're giving people their oh, okay. money back um but also it's the kind of thing where like this isn't the decision of one dude to go get the auto pen and like sell them out of the back of his truck this is something people gathered around a table to figure out and like make come to fruition my chatter to two quick chatters first um just a reminder on November 30th, next Wednesday, I'm going to be co-hosting a live CityCast DC at Politics and Prose at Union Market. 
and Michael Schaefer and I are going to be talking about DC politics, what's happening in DC uh, for a live CityCast DC podcast. I'm so looking forward to it. It's at 6.30 um, at Politics and Pros Union Market. And I think there'll be some drinks afterwards and uh, just can meet the team. Great group. Uh, and we'll talk about interesting stuff. My real chatter sometimes we chatter about things that slate is doing uh, we talk about things that slate is doing because you know we're we're good citizens of slate i want to talk about something that slate is doing that is so good that it it deserves like six or seven chatters of itself of its own which is that there is a podcast that my friend josh levine host of also host of uh, hang up and listen the sports weekly sports podcast of slate called one year where josh takes a year kind of at random in American history and does a bunch of stories around themes of that year. Like usually things that are sort of not quite the main story that happened that year, but things are slightly off the beaten track, but that reveal something about America or about that year, or about that time. And Josh has generally done things that are pretty contemporary, like the eighties and nineties, but now he's doing the year 1942 and it's an incredible podcast. So I would strongly recommend that you listen to three episodes of one year 1942 one is called the year everyone got married which is about how in 1942 americans got married at an incredible rate because all these men were getting sent off to war and so they wanted to get married and there were all kinds of reasons and he talks to in particular this one war bride this one woman who got married in 1942 still alive at the age of 98 and just she's incredibly vivid and and the story is beautiful that's number one number two is the day the music stopped which is about this incredible fact john dickerson did you know that in 1942 american musicians went on strike and there was no new recorded music in the united states for more than a year i did not i did not know that and so there's if you listen to what happens to american music it is wild and so it's actually that musicians are going, instrumental musicians are going to strike. So there's all this acapella music that's recorded. There's music, there's certain musicians who weren't in the union, like certain instruments, like the harp. And so if you listen to popular music from 1943, there's this like music played accompanied by a harp. And music takes this real swerve between 1942 and when it comes back in 1944. And it completely changes the history of American music. And it all comes from this strike that happens. And then there's an episode called the Infowars of 1942, which is about this German propaganda, English language, German propaganda radio station that was beamed into America. There, you, These episodes are fantastic. Listen to it. Such a great show. Such a great podcast. Listeners, you also have great chatters for us and you email them to us at gabfest at slate.com you tweet them to us at at slate gabfest and our listener chatter this week comes from laurent dugois hey gabfest this is laurent from paris france my chatter is in reaction to emily's comments last week that the only way to defeat a bully is to present a united front and link arms and that reminded me of the story of uh, ken McElroy. Ken McElroy lived in the city of Skidmore, Missouri, and he was the town bully. And everybody hated him. So much so that eventually, in 1981, his pickup truck was surrounded by a crowd of about 30 to 40 people. And he was shot to death twice. And nobody could say who did it. Nobody could identify the killers. No arrests were made. No charges were pressed. This town got away with murder. 
So obviously I'm not advocating shooting anyone, but I thought this was a pretty potent illustration of Emily's point. Thanks. <laughs> well, well. Wow. That was, that was a good one, Laurent. That is, like, that is a really yeah. good cocktail chatter. That was like drop the mic cocktail chatter. That was, yes. And with, the, with like a little hint of punk rock in there. That is our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio for Slate. Follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest for as long as Twitter continues to exist. Tweet chatter to us there. And go to slate.com slash conundrums to give us conundrums. We have a few more days to collect them. Your conundrums for us and for Alison Bechdel will be our guest on our conundrum show. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hi, Slate Plus. How are you? We are going to do our conundrum show coming up uh, in the interregnum between Christmas and New Year's, but we're preparing, and you guys are sending us your conundrums to slate.com slash conundrums, and we thought we would we would whet the appetite, get the get the digestive juices flowing by doing a conundrum for our Slate Plus segment this week. So the one we chose is from Ben. What is something you wish you could travel through time to convince your younger self of, but you doubt your younger self could be brought to believe? Emily the Bazelon. I wish I could tell my younger self that it is totally fine to have babies in the middle of trying to develop your career as a young or less young person and that you can afford to take some time and just be relaxed about it and it's all going to work out and you don't have to harry yourself by trying to take shorter leaves or work your way through the whole thing. I wish I had been just had more faith in myself and been more relaxed and taken more time off when my kids were little and that is always the advice that I try to give people who are coming up. So you think you wouldn't have believed yourself? I know I wouldn't have believed myself because I had too much anxiety and insecurity. So did did people give you that advice or no one even gave you that advice? It wasn't future Emily definitely didn't think, come back. <laughs> I'm sure there were some people who tried to give me that advice, but I did not believe in myself enough to listen to them. That's a, that's a really good one. And you you think even if Emily Bazelon herself shows up age 52, or whatever you are, 51, 50? I'm not even sure. You're 51. young. 51. 51. 51-year-old Emily Bazelon, grizzled, barely ambulatory Emily Bazelon shows up to 26-year-old Emily Bazelon and says, look, I know that you should take this time. I know it. I can tell you from lived experience you should take this time. You wouldn't believe it. I guess if it was really like the ghost of Christmas future and I could see some map of myself and understand exactly if I had proof. You then could test I would. your future self. Yeah, but that's not really, I feel like this is more imagining that you can't prove it, but you're just whispering in your own ear, right? I like the conundrum. The wisdom is so powerful that it would, except in, embedded in the question is the fact that the wisdom isn't so powerful that it would work because exactly. your younger self wouldn't take it. Right. And I don't, so sometimes with these loops, the thing that is tricky for me is that how much does my level of anxiety drive the fact that like then things, right? What is yours? John, what do you have a thing? Do you have a one? 
I, I, I mean, I think this is a great question because I think the worry, like, so the, I think one of the most dangerous quotes in the world is Mark Twain's quote, which is, if you find a job you love, you'll never work a day in your life. No, you will work and you will worry. And that work and that worry will make you do great work. And in fact, it's the work and the worry that you're signing up for if you're a certain kind of person. So if you're prone to worry, first of all, if you're not prone to worrying, you lucky dog, and may life continue to be an awesome, um, placid zoom into your rewarding future. But if you are a person of worry, then that worry is what that is you that is you and you need that worry and that worry sharpens you and that worry also helps you when you get older realize that hey you know sometimes your worries are unfounded one of the greatest i think um exercises which i've not used myself but i've read about it and i really believe in it even though i have no direct evidence of it is before you that go was just a snippet from our slate plus conversation if you want to hear the whole conversation Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today.